1 Samuel chapter 20. Before we read the passage this morning, it is another lengthy passage, this chapter. Uh, Just by way of reminder, if you have been following along with us or maybe you didn't have a chance to to hear uh, 1 Samuel chapter 19, um, David finds himself uh, amidst persecution. He finds himself in, in a very difficult time Uh, fleeing from King Saul. Saul, several uh, attempts made in in chapter 19 to actually take David's life. Um, God protecting his anointed through different means. Uh, Jonathan, the prince, Saul's son, was used. Um, David's wife, Saul's daughter, was used. Circumstances in which David was able to get out of Saul's way, and uh, the Lord, the last example, um, overtaking Saul's messengers and causing them to prophesy, shutting down their attempts to to make it to Ramah, to to Naoth, to find David and to, to take him or kill him, and then even King Saul on his way, kind of taking matters into his own hands, attempts to head towards Samuel and David, and he himself, by the hand of God, is, is overtaken in the sense of he's prophesying, laying naked before um, Samuel both day and night, unable to fulfill his desire, which is to take out David. And so we find ourselves now in chapter 20, and please follow along as I read. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah, And came and said before Jonathan, so he comes back to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, Tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice for all the clan. If he says good, it is well it, is, it will be well with your servant, but if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, Would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. 
So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come, uh, come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked me of leave to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's, anger, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to be to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David, because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David, and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrow that I shoot. Find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him, 
And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Hear the word of the Lord. A pretty powerful narrative given to us in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And we are going to seek to just move through the different scenes that we find throughout this chapter and make some note and application as we go along. As, as this story of David is unfolding before us, God's anointed, and the road in which God takes him to kingship. All of this is not meaningless. These, these uh, story details, some may go, man, these are just so long. But, but with God's providence, nothing in our life is meaningless. That's why some of the details are, are kind of mountaintop big experiences, and some of them seem to be very mundane. And yet God is orchestrating David's path through all of this, leading him to the destination that he has for David. And so we see the covenant made between Jonathan and David in chapter 18 really here expanded upon. We're, we're able to see in more depth this covenant that was made between these two men. And really the first 11 verses, we see uh, David coming to Jonathan out of out of despair, um, pleading with his friend, trying to, to get to the bottom of this, seeing if there's any way for there to be peace, reconciliation. Uh, if you remember in chapter 19, Jonathan had made a valiant attempt to plead with the king. And for a period of time, it worked. And so you can only imagine David is, is hopeful that there's some way by going to Jonathan, that he can help the prince, the son of the king. Kind of, some would say, a, a last-ditch effort to, to make his case known. David, what has been made very clear in all that happened in chapter 19, David knows that Saul is hostile towards him. It is, it is very clear. But what we see here, the prince, Jonathan, does not fully... Uh, acknowledge or is fully aware of all that is happening with his father. He, he assumes that anything that Saul is going to do, we're told, he comes to Jonathan and shares. Jonathan's in his court of his most trusted advisors. And yet things are happening in chapter 19 that it seems to indicate that Jonathan was not clued in on. David knows Jonathan is, is, is still kind of in a posture of, of wanting to believe the best in his father. And so David spends several verses asking questions, pleading his case, so to speak. He asks what he has done wrong. 
he, he knows without a shadow of a doubt that Saul is after him, and he wants to know if he has failed him in some way, if, if in some way he has sinned against the king. David's complaint was really that, that Saul had, had violated or broken the vow that he made in chapter 19. In chapter 19, verse 6, Saul had listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And then we see him quickly going against his own vow that he made. In verse 3, David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, Jonathan. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Very clearly laying out to Jonathan, I'm about to die. I need your help. Now, I want us to note uh, something that's important here. Not only was David innocent in this situation, Jonathan was as well. He, in the way that he's responding to David, he is, he is seeking to honor his father. He, at this point, is still seeking to trust the king's leadership and trying to offer David reassurance that all will be well, all is well. Matthew Henry explains here, Jonathan, from a principle of familial respect to his father, was very reluctant to believe that Saul designed or would ever do so wicked a thing. Even in, in this situation, Jonathan is, is seeking to honor his father as, as much as he possibly can. But he does respond to David, whatever you say, I will do. Whatever you say, I will do. This is the king's son speaking. Not to the king, but to the one who will be king. And this is a remarkable reversal if you think about who it is that's speaking in this relationship dynamic. This is the royal prince speaking to one who is lesser uh, subject within the kingdom. And that actually will, will help us as this chapter unfolds understand the covenant that Jonathan has made with David. And so David reveals his plan in the next few verses, five through seven. There's a new moon coming, uh, the beginning of a new month. It was a, an occasion, this was actually mentioned in adult Sunday school. Uh, there were various festivities that happened during the new moon. We see this in Numbers chapter 28. We see this in Ezra chapter three, uh, and in, even referenced in Psalm 81. Uh, there were burnt offerings and appointed feasts set to, to happen during the new moon. And so this makes sense that the king would have these appointed feasts where those in his court would come and, and take seat at table and celebrate these meals together. And so the plan was to see if he could possibly return to the, the king's presence. So the plan was to really get a gauge from the king when his seat is empty, David's, how he responds, and that will, that will indicate whether or not he's found favor with Saul or what he thinks is true actually is true, and Saul is out, out to get him. And so this is the plan unfolded between David and Jonathan, and the, the following verses continue to kind of unpack that. But I want us to just think for a moment in this initial setting, why did David come back to Jonathan? 
I think it's a, a really good question to think about. Why did David come back to Jonathan? And the root of it, which comes out so clearly in this chapter, is because of the covenant between them. That, that's, that's what steered David in this particular direction. And I hope that that, that will become clear as we look at this, of the importance of that. Um, in, in chapter 18, I just to, to refresh our memories, verses 3 and 4, this is what was said. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe, that, that, that which was on him, and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And we see in chapter 20, our chapter this morning, that, that covenant detail given even in more depth to us. And it's crucial as we think about this covenant made between Jonathan and David it was an expression of love. That, that is very important in understanding this covenant made. It was initiated by love. Love gives itself in covenant and gladly promises devotion. It is this love that is anchoring this covenant. The covenant partner then can rest in the security of that promise that the love will not be broken and may even appeal to it. So we see David running to the one who he has made a covenant with, and in a sense, he's appealing to Jonathan based off of the covenant. It was, in fact, Jonathan's covenant faithfulness to which David was appealing in the midst of his despair. We see this in his words in verse 8. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, he pleaded. For you have brought your servant into to a covenant, into a covenant of the Lord with you. No word is wasted here. This, this two-word description of his plea, deal kindly, we get in that kindly, the, the Hebrew word that is used over 250 times in the Old Testament, hesed. Very important word, particularly when we talk about covenant and God's covenant with his people. Hesed is another one of those words that, in English, it's really hard to translate. And so you'll see different versions of the Bible translated in different ways. It's, it's hard to encapsulate in just one English word. You'll see words like mercy, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, loyalty, steadfast love, loyal love, loving kindness. And David is, is re requesting, pleading for Jonathan to deal kindly with him this covenant, steadfast love with, with the one in which he is, is crying out to. And so this deal kindly speaks of mercy shown to the one in need of mercy by the one who has power to give it. David was in need of mercy, and he runs to the prince, the one that he has entered covenant with, pleading for help. And throughout this chapter, both from Jonathan's perspective and David's, we see in this narrative examples of covenant relationship that really are like shadows pointing us to the fulfillment, the reality of that, which is God's covenant with his people. And it actually is very instructive to see how they're interacting with each other and what this covenant means in even their daily life. There is a, 
a loyal love, a loving kindness, a steadfast love that is exemplified in the way in which they interact in the midst of difficult circumstances. And so here's a question. Where do you turn when there is trouble or confusion in your life? We should mark what David does here. David, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of trouble, he runs to the one that he is in covenant with. That's where he goes. Dale Ralph Davis comments in his commentary, in confusion and trouble, you take yourself to the person that that you have made covenant with. In David's disintegrating world, there was yet one space of sanity, one refuge still intact, and it was Jonathan. There was covenant, and there David could expect this faithfulness, this steadfast love, this mercy. He could expect to be dealt kindly with. We should be doing what David did here in 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you are in Christ, when confusion, when trouble comes, this is, this is our response. We flee, we run to the one that we are in covenant with. That is where we find our refuge and strength. To the one who has bound himself to us by covenant. When Jonathan promised his goodwill and support, David asked, as this narrative continues, he asks how, if this plan is going to unfold the way that we hope it unfolds or play out in front of King Saul, how will I know what he actually says? How will the news get back to me? And so we shift to this scene in the field, uh, verses 11 through 23, where kind of removing themselves from earshot of this plan Jonathan calls them out to the field, and they begin to go into the details of what this plan will look like, how David will know what Saul's response is. And so what happens in the field, though, is not just that. There's actually a lot more happening in the field, and that's where I I really want to hone in on it. And it's really now Jonathan's response to David. So we've seen where David goes when he is experiencing trouble and confusion. He runs to the one that he is in covenant with. Now we get to see a different angle of Jonathan, Jonathan's response to the one that he's in covenant with. Both, again, giving us shadows of what it looks like to be in covenant with God Almighty through Jesus Christ, his son. So Jonathan basically says that if all goes well according to plan, I will disclose it to you. And he tells him how he's going to do that. If it does not go well, I will also help you get away safely. And so Jonathan clearly saw something here that he he wanted David to hear from his own lips and inspired by the Spirit of God for us to also hear this very day. Did we have to know exactly this dialogue that happened in the field? The answer is yes. This is God's word, and this part is important as well. So what he says actually reveals something amazing about Jonathan's understanding of who David really is, the anointed one of God. So in verses 13 through 17, Jonathan saw clearly what was coming in the future. And please hear me. 
What he understood coming into the future informed how he responded in the present. He believed. He, he acted on faith of what was going to transpire in the Lord's anointed. This does not seem rational for the prince of the king to say these kind of things unless he had faith in what God had promised in the future. So let's listen to what he was saying. In verse 13, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now, if David had something to ask for in the present, which is what we saw in the first 11 verses, Jonathan had something to ask for in the future. There would, there would come a time when Jonathan, not David, would actually be in the position of need, the needy one. And David gave his oath to these provisions. So Jonathan asks, since we are in covenant with one another, please remember my house forever. And then he goes on to actually clarify that as David, the Lord's anointed, is put into place, he's actually calling down a curse on all those who are opposed to David, all those who are enemies of David. Now, this is, this is really big in the life of the prince to say these kind of words as what is unfolding before his eyes is that his very own father, King Saul, is one of those enemies. Where does his allegiance lie? This also helps us see the, the weight and the breadth of this covenant relationship that it actually defies the familial bloodline. And, and again, a shadow of what's to come in the new covenant. Think about this. In Christ, those who are also redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that is your family. That is the household of faith. And for us who are sens sensual beings, it is very difficult to not put our, our blood family our biological family before even our church family or the, the church of God, the brothers and sisters in Christ. But what we see is this radical paradigm shift for those who live by faith, that there is actually a, a, a relationship that is closer than even your relationship with a family member. Now, the joy of seeing God work by grace is when families blood all come to faith in Christ and there is this rejoicing of both we are gifted by God to be in our family here on earth and yet we're also part of the household of faith that is just blessing upon blessing grace upon grace but I'm sure if you are in this room this morning and you have been saved by grace through faith in the son there are those whom you love who are by blood close to you who who do not love the Lord Jesus and there is, there is a, a distance, there is a lack of a kindred spirit between you and that person that you get to experience 
with those who are part of God's, God's family. We, we see this begin to, to play out in Jonathan's life. Jonathan, in his speech and his plea even to David, was, was expressing extraordinary faith. One commentator writes it like this. He says, covenant has become the vehicle for uncommon faithfulness. Because if you're looking at Jonathan's life, this, this is uncommon, the way that he's responding to David, who is the one on the run. Like if you're just looking at the, the situation with just your physical eyes and you're assessing it, King David has all the power. The prince should be gravitating towards his father, who is reigning right now, not towards the one who is on the run pleading for his life, who has nothing. Yet that's exactly what's happening, and this is uncommon faithfulness in the life of Jonathan, who is looking towards the future, and that is informing the present. Isn't that the life, the mark of all believers in Christ? We are the ones who have this eternal perspective that actually informs our day-to-day, the mundane, our marriage, the way we deal with our children, in our, in our vocations. Everything changes because we actually are looking with eternity in mind. The future actually really does matter and affect the present. It reminds me of the definition we get in Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Jonathan has not seen this play out. He doesn't know exactly how his father's even going to respond, but he has entered into covenant with the Lord's anointed, and his allegiance is given wholly to David. Now, in the flesh, that is a big gamble, just if you're looking at the lay of the land. But he's walking by faith in this situation. And so Jonathan is not just an example um, teaching us how to be a good friend in this chapter because a lot of people go to 1 Samuel chapter 20, you know, we dissect this amazing relationship between Jonathan and David. There's so much more happening here. He is teaching us how to be a real follower. He is teaching us how to be a real follower. So like Jonathan, we are to give up our rights to reign. We are to acclaim the Lord's anointed, which, which we see come to, to culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ, David's descendant, as God's king, God's anointed. And so, as followers of Christ, the Lord's anointed, we are to bind our future with his. We give up our control. We are to be like, in the New Testament, John the Baptist, who, remember, this is the... Um, This is the one who is the older cousin to Jesus, John the Baptist, and he's the one out of his mouth that says, he must become greater, I must become less. Jonathan's covenant relationship with David is but a shadow of the relationship that Christ has with his people. And so there's much for us to glean here. Those who love the future king... So in this setting, David is loving, dealing kindly with the future king, must set themselves against their enemies, whoever that might be. So this is kind of circling back to what I was mentioning before. But there are a lot of things in this life 
that bring, feel, that, that bring fear, that instill fear in us. Whatever you fear really should be in light of the future. So Jonathan, in a good sense, in reverence, he, he feared the coming king and he made peace with him as he had opportunity in the present. And so I, I want to reiterate this again. This was a good fear. He loved David like he loved his own soul, we're told. He loved the coming king. He knew his goodness. And it actually, it reoriented the way that he would have to even interact with his own father. A few passages from the New Testament that I just want to hear, that I want us to hear and just to allow to, to um, stew in our minds for a little bit. Philippians chapter 2. This is, this is thinking about the reality of what's to come informing the present. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, a very familiar passage, but we need to hear this. The Lord Jesus, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That is reality. Whether you want to acknowledge it now or not, we will all bow the knee before King Jesus. That reality in the future should inform your present. Another passage from Matthew chapter 10 about fear and what we should fear. Because, again, according to the flesh or according to the eyes, what makes sense, Jonathan should actually be fearing King Saul in this situation. He's the one bearing the sword. He's the one with the power. And yet, he's actually going a completely different direction. And so in Matthew chapter 10, it's good for us to hear this as well. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be, be known. This is verse 26. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than the sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Again, the, the reason why I went there with those passages is to help us get a glimpse of the reality of who is reigning on the throne and how that should reorient our lives, what we fear and what we don't, how we approach difficulties, even enemies that are hostile to the gospel. And just kind of trying to do this in a, in a timely manner, Jonathan then explains how he will notify David based off of how Saul responds. So we, we've heard the passage read. He's going to be shooting arrows. If one is shot beyond the mark and he tells the little boy it's beyond the mark, that is to let David know things are not good. If it's shot just beside him, that's the indication that actually Saul's not going, or he's not out 
not out to kill him. And so that's clarified between the two. They know what they're supposed to do. And so Jonathan goes back and, and, and David stays behind. Now, this, the next whole section, verses 24 through 34, basically begins with David's empty seat at the table, and it ends with Jonathan's empty seat at the table. So there's details that fill that, but that kind of helps us kind of set the stage. David doesn't show up, which will then hopefully spawn a response of King Saul, they hope, to be concerned about where David is and maybe have a change of heart that he actually wants David to be in his presence. And then at the, the back end of this section, we see the result in Jonathan actually leaving the scene because of the way Saul responds. So that's, that's the lay of, or the, the flow of this part of the, the narrative. What I want us to see is what I have already mentioned once but comes to light here in this part of the narrative. Choosing between the anointed king and his own flesh and blood when his family, Saul, namely his father, has chosen enemy, enmity towards the future king. So now Jonathan is, is, is actually living in the reality of what, what is actually happening. He has devoted himself to the future king, what is made clear in these verses is that Saul is at enmity with the anointed king. That is, that is what's, what is being made clear, what is um, defined in these moments where the first day, King Saul kind of gives him a pass. He's probably unclean. That's why he's not here. Very clearly the second day, David does not show up again, and we see we see. Saul just explode upon the response of Jonathan. Now, whether we think uh, of David and Jonathan's deception as being something that should have happened or should not have happened, what is clear is that it did not accomplish anything positive. What they had hoped was that somehow by doing it like this, Saul would respond in a, in a gracious way in, in wanting David to come back. And it seems very clear that Jonathan was, was a very poor liar, and his, son, uh, his father, being the king, was able to cl clearly uh, see in his son that what he had said was false, and so he explodes. And his explosion manifests his heart very clearly before all to see. And he says some horrific things to his son. And you think about the end of the chapter and the weeping that happens with, with, with relationships. I, I don't want this to just be kind of put in the category of we're kind of hearing a story and it's trying to, kind of driving us to a certain point and we neglect to see the reality of what's happening between a father and a son. But the words that are spoken from Saul to his son penetrate right to the heart of just brokenness for a son to hear those words spoken about them from their father. And you can only imagine that this really in a, in a more, probably more crystal clear way than he could have ever imagined, kind of defined where everyone was in this situation, relationally, in regards to covenant, in regards to serving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. What a, what a horrible, hard situation for Jonathan to experience coming from 
his father. Jonathan had come to a living embrace of one of the the maxims, the sayings that Jesus spoke. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And Jesus goes on to tell his disciples that they must be willing to suffer this kind of abuse. In Luke chapter 14, we hear, if anyone comes to, to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And Jesus also said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. John 15, verse 18. Jonathan is getting getting a, a full glimpse of what it means to be a follower of the anointed. Brothers and sisters, that has not changed for those of us who are followers of the anointed one. What happened to Jonathan is what happens to us when we face those who are at, in, at enmity with Christ. So this should actually help us have a proper um, expectation as we go out into the world. If Jesus out of his own mouth says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me first. Well, that actually prepares us to enter in and to know that if, if your family members are at enmity with Christ, it is going to hurt It is going to be extremely difficult, but don't be caught off guard. It actually does affect relationships. Your allegiance to the king will affect your relationships to those who are against the king. Please know that. Don't be surprised by that. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and aid of the Holy Spirit, he will help us navigate those very difficult waters. But all this is laid before us not as a surprise. The Lord Jesus is saying, There is a cost to discipleship. Now come follow me. Alistair Begg once wrote, Following Christ is not a decision we make just at the moment of salvation. We make it every day of our lives. And really, we're seeing in Jonathan's life, he's having to again and again reaffirm his covenant with David. And it's difficult with his own father. He is basically, well, what we see, he has a spear thrown at his head. So not just the words that wound, his father is going to actually strike his son dead. So we begin with an empty chair of David. We end with two empty seats, David and Jonathan. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with the little boy. And so Jonathan shot the arrow well past and sent the boy uh, eventually to gather and be sent away. And as soon as the boy had gone, they both clearly know how Saul responds. David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times and they kissed one another and wept with one another David weeping the most there was an illustration given in one of the commentaries that I think is really good if you are one who's um, finding it very uncomfortable to hear this description of Jonathan and David in their their relationship 
we may not appreciate the gravity of their lamentable situation if we think that their tears are somehow unmanly. If this was some unmanly display and they just need to buck up and be men. On the eve of the American Civil War, Lewis Armistead and Winfield Scott Hancock spent a night weeping together as they departed for war. One to assume the command in the Southern Army and the other in the North. Both would, be bitterly lament, both would bitterly lament their parting, especially on the day when, as Armistead died and Hancock lay bleeding, their respective commands clashed in the Battle of Gettysburg. Men of great feeling will exhibit emotion not only over their victories and losses, but also over their loss and parted comrades. And so what we see with David and Jonathan really is a glimpse of the reality of the situation and how, how grave it is. And we see just an overflow of emotion, much weeping and lamenting. Um, and you can only imagine as it, the description of David lamenting more, his care for his friend who just experienced that with his father. Because David, as we watch these chapters unfold, he does not ever mean harm upon Saul. He wants, he wants probably more, just like Samuel, for, for there to be a, a repentance and change in King Saul's life. He had no desire to harm him nor to destroy the relationship between Saul and Jonathan, but knew the reality of the covenant that they had made with each other. This was all Saul's doing, and it was tragic, and they're experiencing that tragedy together. But what I love is verse 42. And this is where we're going to bring it to a close. There is perfect peace for those who trust in the Lord. Isaiah 26, 3. Verse 42, Jonathan said to David, go in peace. How could Jonathan say, go in peace? Because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. More important still was the peace that they received through their covenant with the Lord. This covenant was not just a man and a man. It is rooted and grounded in the Lord. Their peace rested on God's covenant promises and God's faithfulness to keep his oath. And this is where a soul can find peace in the midst of of trials of various kinds. In the hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, we hear this, this frame, His oath, His covenant, His blood, support me in the whelming flood. It is, it's a description of the Christian life. There will be constant waves crashing in on us. And His oath, His covenant, His blood is what supports us through all of that. We gain peace with God through the covenant of grace. This is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Him purchasing us by his blood. We are forgiven of our sins. We are justified before God. And his covenant promise then secures peace. As, David, uh, as Dennis prayed, a peace that passes all understanding. In the midst of trials like what Jonathan and David experienced here. They're able to leave 
and rest in peace. I hope you're sitting there going, I long to be in that spot where in the midst of something like this, I can actually experience a peace that passes all understanding. And it is available to all of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Jonathan, we can control even how the, the people close, we can't control even how the people closest, closest to us react to our allegiance to the coming king. But like him, even when, when the troubles come, God can, can overwhelm us with his covenantal peace, his faithfulness, his steadfast love. And again, this is what Isaiah spoke of those like Jonathan and like us in Christ when he said, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. May that be true of us this day. Let us pray. Father, we are so very thankful to sit under your word this Lord's day. Blessed be God, the Father of all mercy, who continues to pour out his benefits upon us. Father, we praise you for your grace and mercy that you lavish upon us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, to have these truths implanted in our minds and hearts, that there is perfect peace for those who trust in the Lord, even in the most difficult trials of this life. May we be like David and run to the one who has made covenant with us, who deals kindly with us when confusion and trouble come. Father, your blessings hang in clusters falling upon us this morning. They break, break forth like mighty waters on every side. And now, Lord, you have fed us with the bread of life, your word. And we pray that you would bless it, Lord. Make it health and strength to us until our obedience reaches the measure of your love, you who have done everything for us. Grant this, dear Father, for your Son's sake, our Savior, with you and the Holy Spirit, three persons, but one most glorious, incomprehensible God, be all honor, glory, and praise forever. Amen.